Mark chapter 5. Uh, as we get into this uh, passage, uh, you'll see another reason to rest in Jesus. His tender compassion uh, will show up here as much as it does anywhere else. So it's a wonderful song to lead into our sermon, and then hopefully we've got a, a good one to um, summarize uh, what we see together this morning. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to begin with a word of prayer as we have been all through uh, this series. So once you've found it, uh, just go ahead and bow your head, close your eyes, and we'll begin asking for God's help in our study this morning. Father, thank you for sending uh, the one, the only one that we can rest in. There is no one else. Uh, we've, we've tried. We've tried to find rest in ourselves and our own accomplishments, our own goodness, our own potential, and that doesn't work. We've reached out to others. We have set our sights on other people, friends, loved ones, politicians, athletes, entertainers, good people. Maybe they've got the solution. Maybe they've got the power. Maybe they've got the authority. Maybe they can, maybe they can do something on my behalf that will give me hope and peace and the ability just to, to rest easy, that everything's going to be all right forever. And that didn't work either. Because they're just like us. They're sinners. They live under the curse. They live fallen and depraved. There's nothing that we can find in them or ourselves that can make us right with you, acceptable in your sight. We're glad that as we pray this this morning, as we're reminded of this, that the story doesn't end there. We're glad that you didn't leave us hopeless, without peace forever, condemned uh, to what we have earned, but instead you sent your son to be a man, to live and to die on our behalf. And you raised him from the dead, proving that you were satisfied with all that he had done, all of his obedience on our behalf. You were satisfied. It was, it was finished, everything you gave him to do. And then you sent your Holy Spirit to come to us in time and open our eyes so we can see the truth about ourselves and about you and about your son and and about the, the one that we can rest in by faith. You did it all. It's completely grace from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. It's nothing but grace. It's all grace. And so we praise you this morning. We lift up our voices in song. We lift up our voices in prayer. As we come to your word, we're going to give you our, our utmost attention, all to express our gratitude to you, all to give you praise for who you are and for what you have done. And we beg that through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, you will use your word to show us even more of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we can see more that makes him different from us, who he is, what he did. And Father, I pray that by the end of us, by the end of this, we will, we will all be left adoring him more than we ever have before. We will be left trusting even less in ourselves, less in anything else and more in him than we ever have before. More grateful, more dependent, more thrilled, excited, more um, expectant for his return and all that that will mean for us as well. So Father, you use your word this morning as only you can. Use your word spiritually. Use your word for eternal results this morning and we'll, we'll do our best to give you the praise that you deserve for it. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So how do we live for Christ? That's the question. How do we live for Christ? How do we live his way? 
for his glory and do it gladly and passionately and unconditionally? That's the question. That's the desire in the heart of every true disciple of Jesus Christ. Our problem is not the desire, it's the execution. We struggle to do what we want to do as God's children, as disciples of Jesus Christ. We read Romans chapter 7 and Paul's struggle. Here's what I want to do, but I don't do that. Here's the things I don't want to do, and that's what I find myself doing. And Paul's moaning, Paul's groaning in Romans chapter 7 is the groan of every true disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to live for Christ, his way, for his glory, passionately, gladly, unconditionally, but we just struggle to do it, don't we? We need, help, we need all the help we can get in that area. And that's why we've been studying, we've been looking at these disciples in Scripture, followers of Jesus Christ, none of them perfect. And I hope you haven't gotten that impression that I'm laying them out saying, well, here's a perfect model for you to follow. None of these portraits of faith have been perfect models, but they are believers who somehow, some way, managed to do the things we want to do. They manage to be what we want to be in certain areas of the Christian life where we struggle. Their desires, their plans, their words, their actions in ways were all about Christ and all for Christ, just as he deserves. That's why we've been looking at them. So let me put them up here one last time for you on the screen. These are the names that we have looked at. Joseph of Arimathea, he was the Sanhedrin member, remember him? And he was a secret disciple for a long time because he was afraid of the other members of the Sanhedrin and what they might do to him if they found out he was a follower of Jesus. But after watching the crucifixion of Jesus, he came out of the closet, so to speak, asked for the body of Jesus, took that body down off the cross all by himself, and then buried the body of Jesus in his own tomb, being associated with Jesus from that point forward. The next one we talked about was Joseph, who was nicknamed Barsabbas. This was the man who started following Jesus about the time Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and he followed Jesus all the, time, all the way up to the point that Jesus left up in the clouds and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Barsabbas was one of two nominated by all the disciples there in the early church to be the replacement for Judas as the twelfth apostle. He was not chosen by God. Matthias was chosen instead of Barsabbas. But here was another man who was a follower of Jesus Christ, openly, strongly, was recognized that way. And it was fun to look at his life. Barnabas, one of the ones we probably knew best on this whole list. Uh, Barnabas probably became a believer in Jesus Christ at Pentecost, listening to that famous sermon preached by the Apostle Peter. So he was a part of that initial church in Jerusalem, and he used his money and he used his speaking gift to minister to the people in need in that early church. He ministered to the Apostle Paul in a major sort of way. He ministered to John Mark when the Apostle Paul didn't really favor John Mark at one point in time. So Barnabas showed us some things about being a disciple as well. We talked about this married couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And even though we don't know exactly when they became believers, we know they met Paul in Corinth and they served with Paul in Corinth. They went on to Ephesus and served with Paul in Ephesus. They opened their home for early churches to meet in their home. Then they went back to Rome where they had been kicked out of for being Jewish. 
And they opened their home there for believers in Rome to meet and worship Jesus Christ there together. So another couple that that we just saw great qualities individually and as a couple, qualities that should be there in every disciple of Jesus Christ. We looked at the Philippian jailer. You remember Paul and Silas were arrested because Paul cast that demon out of the slave girl. He was arrested, Silas, with him. But at night, they were praising God. They were singing praises to God. They were praying. I think the jailer was listening to them. And then came that earthquake where all the prisoners were set free. Their chains fell off. And the the jailer in desperation cried out, What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas preached the gospel to him. And he became a believer at that moment in time. And his family did too. And immediately they started to serve Paul and Silas and serve other believers. And just a wonderful description of that initial point of salvation and what discipleship looks like as soon as it begins. Then lastly, we talked about the Thessalonian church, that group, that congregation of believers in Thessalonica. Paul was only there for about three weeks or so, preaching the gospel in the synagogue, taking the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ, then laying down the facts about Jesus of Nazareth and saying, Jesus must be the Christ. He has to be. He's the only one who has the characteristics that were prophesied that would be found in Messiah. And so he preached that, and many, um, many Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism then believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and that church grew from there. And as soon as they started believing in Jesus, they started talking about Jesus. So much so that when Paul and his entourage left and started traveling to Berea and then Corinth and then other places after that, those people had already heard about the Thessalonians. They had already heard about the power of the gospel in Thessalonica and how it had changed the lives of those Thessalonian Jews and Gentiles. And so what it tells us, once again, is one of the things that we struggle with so much. That is witnessing for Jesus, bragging about him and who he is and and what he's done to, to change our lives in such a major way. Well, all of these people, and I don't have to really say this, you know this, but all of these people were different in so many ways. They were different in time. They were different in the places in which they lived. They were, they were different in their backgrounds, where they had each come from when we met them. They were different in their occupations. They were different in their ethnicities. They were different in their surroundings. They were different in the religions that they practiced before they ran into Jesus. Different in so many ways. But with all those differences, there was a common thread that has run through every one of these portraits of faith. They were all exposed to the truth. And specifically, I'm talking about the truth about Jesus Christ. All of them, every one of them was exposed to the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, some of them saw Jesus personally with their own eyes. They met him. They they were in his physical bodily presence. Both of the first two, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph nicknamed Barsabbas, both of them were in the presence of Jesus as he walked on this earth. Barsabbas followed him for about three years, lived around him and the other 12 disciples. And so some of these people on our list had firsthand, direct, personal exposure to Jesus. The rest of them, even though they didn't meet Jesus personally and bodily, they learned of him through the preaching and teaching of the apostles. Most of them through Paul's preaching and teaching, but Barnabas probably through Peter's. But still, even though they didn't see him face-to-face with their own physical eyes, they saw him with spiritual eyes, all of them. Spiritual opened eyes. 
They saw him in truth. They saw Jesus as he really is. They saw God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that exposure, that sight, produced all the things that we've seen about them. The feelings they had, the desires that were in them, the words that they spoke, the actions that they took for Jesus Christ were all because of what they saw of Jesus Christ. So that left us with our lesson, and that's this. Discipleship and the strength of discipleship depends on exposure to Jesus Christ. And I'll put it up here. I'll put the the statement that we've made week after week after week. This is the last time you're going to see it. So if you haven't written it down and you don't have a photographic memory, you might want to write this down before we go on from it today. What we see of Christ dictates what we do for Christ because it shapes what we think of Christ. We've seen that in each one of these people that I just had up here on the screen individually. As a couple, they all shared that in common. What they saw of Christ dictated what they did for Christ because it it shaped what they were thinking of Christ. So it brings us to our last portrait this morning. And to do this one, we're going to kind of break our chronological sequence. If you noticed, we've been coming forward in time. We went back about as far as, well, not as far as we could, but we started back here, and then we saw another one who who was a little closer to our time period, and then another one that was a little later, then another one that was a little later, till we got to that Thessalonian church, the latest of all the the disciples that we've looked at. Well, this morning, we're going to go backward to someone who met Jesus before practically all of those people that we've talked about, except for Barsabbas. Barsabbas was with Jesus pretty much from the beginning when John the Baptist baptized him. But this one that we're going to look at this morning is, I guess, the second earliest contact with Jesus that we've considered so far. So you're in Mark chapter 5, hopefully. If not, get there fast. And I want to read the first 13 verses to get us started this morning, okay? Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. You follow along in your Bible. Mark wrote this. Then they came to the other side of the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. They had been on the northwest side. They came over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So just get that picture in your mind. And to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, 
We love stories like this, don't we? I mean, you read things like this all through the Gospels, and, and we just love this. This is like the classic battle between good and evil, isn't it? We, we love to watch movies like this. But then but in this one, you've got the ultimate good guy, don't you? Jesus, he's the ultimate good guy versus about the worst of evil, demons, right? A whole legion of demons. So this is, this is the stuff that, that movies are made of. Now, this story doesn't start so well. This story shows us that Jesus is not around yet and his enemy is running wild. I mean, literally running wild, right? You've got a whole legion of demons who are possessing this one poor man. They're abusing him and they're using him to terrorize the entire community in that region. Matthew, we're not going to look back there and see his account, but Matthew says this guy was so fierce, that's his word, so fierce, that no one could pass by this way. Try to walk where he was within eyeshot of him. And if he saw you, you were not going to get past him. That's what, what this man was like under the control of these demons. This is what we would call out-of-control mental illness. I mean, literally, this, this is what it looks like about at its worst. This is true insanity. This man was not thinking or acting like a man anymore. He was in misery. He was crying out, screaming, cutting himself constantly without end. I mean, this is what he was doing all the time, cutting himself, just, just crazed. And we have to imagine, and it kind of tells us this, for their own safety, and, and maybe some of them, for his own good, had tried to restrain him. You can see local authorities, oh, we've, we've got to get this man under control. He's just, he's going to make a wreck of our community. You can see family and friends burdened for this guy, wanting to help him in some way, but we can't help him as long as he's running around crazy like this, so we need to restrain him so we can try to find a way to get him under control. And guess what? Didn't work. Nobody had been able to do that. No one could overpower the power of the demons that were inside of him. Mark says no one could tame him. That's language you use for an animal, isn't it? You tame wild animals. No one could tame this wild man. But then Jesus shows up and everything changes, right? Now, it's fascinating to me, and I don't know if it stood out to you when, when I read the verse, but it's fascinating to me that when this man saw Jesus from a distance, from afar, he ran to Jesus, still demon-possessed. The, the demons were still in him, and yet he ran to Jesus when he saw him. And we don't know exactly why. Why would this man, possessed by a whole legion of demons, run to Jesus when he sees him from a distance? Is it this guy with just a brief moment of sanity? And, and, he, and his eyes set on Jesus, and somehow he knows maybe this is the guy that can give me some kind of relief from all of this? We don't know. Is this demonic control? I mean, the demons are controlling him, and they're, they're, they're bound and determined to defend their turf like a wild animal, and they're just threatening Jesus the way they've threatened everybody else who's tried to come by this man that they are possessing. We don't know. We, we, we can't say for sure. But what I love about this scene is the man's posture when he gets to Jesus. Look back at verse 6 with me again. And look at the language. Yours might be a little different, but the New King James says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Worship. Now, now don't, don't go too far 
with this word. We hear the word worship and we think genuine. We think heartfelt. We think uh, understanding. We think somebody gets it and they're giving Jesus exactly what he deserves. And that can be true of this word, but that doesn't have to be true of this word. This is a word that's more about posture, okay? So this man sees Jesus from a distance, runs to him, and bows, hits his knees. That's this word. It has the idea of, uh, of recognizing a superior. And to, 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 to show that you recognize that this person is superior, you go to your knees, you bow, you may even kiss the hand. Those are actions of reverence. They don't always have to come from a heart that is convinced, a genuine, glad heart. It's just a recognition of who this person is, that they are higher than I am, and I need to show that. This man, when he got to Jesus, I just love it, that he hit his knees and at the very least bowed before Jesus, may have kissed his hands in this spot. I also love how Jesus gave an order to this man, to the demon, speaking through this man, and what did the demon do? He obeyed. This demon, legion of demons, obeyed the command of Jesus, even though the demon professes, says out loud, that he's got nothing to do with Jesus. What have I to do with you? And it's a rhetorical question. I have nothing to do with you, so why are you giving me commands? But he obeyed anything anyway, right? Demons don't love God, but what did James say about them? They believe and they tremble. And here you have an example of that. You have a legion of demons possessing this one man, and when they're confronted with the Son of God, what do they do? They believe that he's the Son of God, and they tremble to the point that they obey the command that he gives out. That's kind of surprising on the surface, right? Until you understand that relationship between God and the evil spirits. But I love that obedience that comes from the demon. I also love these, these other um, signs of submission on his part. You know, just the fact that he asks Jesus, don't torment me, meaning what? He knows that Jesus has the ability to torment him, the authority to torment him, And remember another time when Jesus ran into an evil spirit and that spirit said, have you come to torment me before the time? Meaning what? They know out in the future a judgment is coming for for them as well and they associate that judgment with Jesus. Here this demon is kind of intimating that as well. Please don't torment me. I know you can. I know you have the authority. I know it's coming in the future, but please don't do that right now. These are more words and more uh, another request that shows submission on the part of this evil, this evil spirit, begging for some mercy from Jesus. Even requesting permission from Jesus for their next move. Okay, we can't stay in this guy. You've already commanded us to come out of this guy, but can we ask permission to do something else? Again, I just love the the submissiveness here on the part of the evil spirits. I'm not trying to put them up on a pedestal. I'm not trying to call them good. This is more showing just the, the fact of who Jesus is and the recognition of the person of Jesus, even by his greatest enemies. Well, there might be something else here to love as well. I'm just going to throw this out. I can't guarantee this. But on the surface, 
it might seem like Jesus did something cruel in this scene, right? I mean, Jesus gives the word and 2,000 pigs die. Boy, the tree huggers and the animal lovers would have fits with that, right? They would have had fits with Israel. I mean, all the sacrifices that were going on in Israel every day, I'm sure they would have flipped their lids over that. But here Jesus gives a command, which was something very good for the demon-possessed man, but it wasn't good for that herd of, of, of pigs. 2,000 pigs get killed by an order or just a granting of permission by Jesus. But here's the thing. If those pigs belonged to a Jewish farmer, and we don't know that they did for sure, it's possible. In that area, over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there were Jews and Gentiles living. But if this was a Jewish farmer who owned all of these pigs, what do we know about pigs in Israel? They were unclean animals, right? Jews could not eat pigs. Jews couldn't touch the carcass of a pig, okay? So it was against the law, the Mosaic law, for this man, if he was a Jewish farmer, he was doing something that was probably against the law, and he was enabling other Jewish people to do things that were against the Mosaic law. What could God have done to that pig farmer if, in fact, he was a Jewish pig farmer? What could God have done to punish this man for breaking the law in such an egregious fashion? Well, we can imagine that, but what did Jesus do? Well, brilliant. it's just absolutely brilliant. I keep using that word for God and for Christ, but just brilliantly, sovereignly, and mercifully at the same time, he stopped the sin of that farmer without destroying the sinner. He got rid of the pigs and the demons without condemning that farmer himself. So all of this to just try to show you that the deity of Jesus Christ is on full display here. What we watch him doing and saying and the responses to him show that he is sovereign and he is majestic. We sang majesty this morning. Here is a demonstration of his kingliness. We see him being all-powerful. We see his wisdom. We see his righteousness. So his attributes are put on display in this scene, and they are recognized in this scene. Those two don't always go together. The attributes of God are always on display, but how many days do we not recognize them? Not only do we not see them, but we don't talk about them. We don't proclaim them. We don't don't point people's attention to his attributes. But here, they went together. He put them on display, and they were recognized even by his greatest enemies. And that's the way it should be, right? Now, come back to the text of verse 14. And I want to show you the next thing that takes place because it's pretty understandable. We, we would expect this to take place. Verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled. They ran. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they, the people they told it to, went out to see what it was that had happened. Now, I assume the farmhands, I don't know how many there were, I don't know who they were, I don't know if it was the farmer himself and his kids or some hired hands. We don't know. But I assume the farmhands weren't present for the conversation between Jesus and the man, the demons. I think they were at a distance. I think they were over in a field watching after the pigs. They weren't there to hear what was said by Jesus and by the demons. All they knew was that those 2,000 pigs that were in their charge, they were responsible for, They were caring for them. Together, those 2,000 pigs took off running down the hill straight into the sea and drowned there. That's what they knew. 
That's what they had watched. That's what they experienced. And it happened so suddenly. And I think it was such an unusual thing for anybody to witness. And it was so shocking to those guys. And it was so scary that they ran to town telling everyone what had happened along the way. They didn't know what had caused it. I think that's obvious here. Those, those farmers had no idea at this point in time what had spooked that herd of pigs and caused them to run into the sea. They didn't know that, but they wanted, everyone, they wanted everyone to know that it had happened. To me, that's very understandable. That would be something you would talk about. <laughs> that's not something that you would watch and then go home and turn on the ball game and just forget all about it. No, you're going to tell somebody about that, and you're going to be curious to find out what took place. And understandably, the people that they told this to were curious. They wanted to get to the bottom of it. So what did they do? They left the city. They went out to the field, out to the mountains where this took place, trying to find answers. Now, don't you wonder what they were expecting? Now, we just heard this crazy story. And we're going to go find out what happened. What could it have been? I mean, what would spook 2,000 pigs just like that to make all of them run down the hill and drown in the sea? Are we going to find evidence that there was an earthquake? A great, a great chasm in the earth? Oh, that explains it for sure. Are, are we going to find that there had been a fire? Maybe fire broke out. The farmhands didn't realize it, but fire broke out right there in the middle of the herd. And scared, they ran down the hill. Are we going to find evidence that there had been wolves there? Maybe wolves were lurking in the area. The pigs recognized it. The farmhands didn't, but the pigs took off running, obviously not thinking about what they were doing. Were there snakes? Will we find fire ants? I mean, it could be any number of things that, that was in their mind that they thought, well, this is probably going to be the explanation for it, but we want to go out and see if we can find any evidence. What did they find? Well, look at verse 15. Then they came to Jesus... And they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. we got to find out what caused these pigs to, to run down into the sea. Here's what I think probably happened. Well, no, I think this is probably it. And they get out there, and what do they find? They find two men in a way they never would have expected to find those two men. And I'll start in reverse order. First of all, the Gadarene man, the, the, the one who had been demon-possessed. I think we can safely assume that everybody in that area, in that region, in that community, knew of this guy. They might not know him, but everybody knows about the crazy man that lives out in the tombs in the mountains. That's, that's not something that's going to be secret. I mean, this is, this is a, a local legend. Basically, So I think when they came out there, they knew about this man. They knew that he lived out in that particular area. So they might not have been surprised to see him. He's out there, right? If we went out there at any point in time, we might run into this guy. And so they go out to that area, and here he is. That's not a surprise. But I'll guarantee you they didn't expect to find him as they found him, right? Sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Because how did they know this man to be? Well, that's, that's the crazy guy. That's the wild man. That's the guy that's out of control. He's the dangerous one. He's fierce. You don't pass by him or you might end up getting hurt. That's the loud guy. You know, we go outside, we can hear him screaming from town half the time as he's cutting himself. That's how they knew him to be. And now they get out there, they find him, and what do they find? He's calm. 
That very same guy is now under control. He's sane. He's human. He's thinking. He's talking sensibly just like everyone else. That guy's not standing out like he used to. He's standing out now, but he's standing out because he's not like he used to be, right? So I think that was the first surprise that they got when they went out there. And what was their reaction to finding the guy this way? What would you expect their reaction to be? I mean, don't, wouldn't you expect them to be happy for the guy? I mean, even lost people, when they see someone in misery and they see their lives made better, they're usually happy for someone like that. You would think these people would be happy for their community. This guy can't terrorize us anymore. Now we can go traveling down that road out by the mountain and we don't have to worry that he's going to come out screaming at us or throw rocks at us or who knows what he might. We don't have to worry about that anymore because now he's saying, look at him. And wouldn't you think they would be really eager to find out what happened to him? I mean, stands the reason, right? Wouldn't you want an explanation for this? This, is, this doesn't happen every day. This is remarkable. And I would think they would want to find out about that. But they're not. How did they respond? They're afraid. They're afraid. They're scared. Scared what? I mean, what is it they're scared of? Are they afraid? This is a trap. This, this guy is faking it. This guy is just acting like everything's new now. Everything's calm. You can trust me. Just to try to get people close to him, and he's going to jump on us, and he's going to hurt us that way. Is that what they're scared of? Is that what they're worried about? I, I don't think so. I think there's another explanation here. I think they're scared of something else. And, and I think our answer is found in their reaction to the other player in this drama. I told you they found two people in a way they didn't expect to find them. Well, they also found somebody else. Who? Jesus. He's the other big player in this drama. They come out, they find the crazy man, not crazy anymore. And they also find this guy, Jesus. Now, now remember, no human had been able to get that wild man under control to this point in time. They had tried. They probably tried everything they could think of. They, they used all their resources. They used ropes. They used chains. Everything they could think of to get this guy under control. No human power had been able to get that guy under control. There was no human power greater than the power that was in that guy until now. Until this other guy, Jesus, showed up. Jesus had overpowered him. And he had done it without ropes. It didn't require chains for Jesus to overcome this man and, and help this man and, and make him sane once again. Jesus didn't use any of their resources to do it. It was a different kind of power. And I think that kind of power may have made them more nervous. I, I think that's what scared them here. It's not what the potential of this guy now it's the potential of the other guy. If that guy has that kind of power and authority to do this to this guy, that's what's scaring them. And I'll get to it in just a second. But I've got evidence, I think. Look at verses 16 and 17. And I think here you find my proof, at least, for that theory. Look at verse 16. And those who saw it told them, the people who came out from the city, how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed, and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. That's surprising too, isn't it? 
So there were some people here who had witnessed the whole thing. We know who some of them were, right? The disciples. The disciples had been traveling with Jesus on the boat. When Jesus got out of the boat, they got out of the boat too. But it's implied in this whole setting that there were others who met Jesus when he got off the boat. And that was typically the case, right? Word was going ahead of Jesus. Oh, there's this guy that's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's performing miracles like crazy. So word would travel. Jesus would get there, and they're already waiting for him. So at the very least, his disciples had seen everything that took place here. There were probably others from that area who had watched what had taken place. They had watched and they had listened to the interaction between Jesus and this demon, this this legion of demons. They had heard Jesus command that that demon to come out of him. They had heard the demon proclaim who Jesus is. He's the son of the most high God. They had heard Jesus give permission to the demon to go out into the pigs. They had watched the pigs run down the hill into the sea and drowned out there in the waters. And they had watched the immediate transformation in this man when he was freed from those demons. I would say these people, these onlookers, were probably responsible for the clothing that this man, he he was found sitting clothed and in his right mind. He hadn't been clothed before. He's running around like a naked wild man. Now he's got clothes on. Where'd they come from? Probably this group of people who had witnessed the whole thing take place. So those witnesses told the people from the city all of that, everything that had happened. And what would you expect those people to do? You just hear that this one man is responsible for overpowering this legion of demons and ordering them to come out of the man, and they came out of the man, and they asked for permission to go into the pigs, and he gave them permission, and they went into the pigs and ran down the hill into the sea. You hear that took place. You hear that man has the capability of doing that, and what would you expect those people to do? Start praising that guy, right? When do you ever meet anybody like that? I mean, this is like the carnival has come to town. The circus has arrived. Show us more. We want to see more. Do another miracle. Here, we know so-and-so back in town. He needs to be healed. Can we bring him out and you heal him too? Right? I mean, that's what you would expect. Come into our town. Come to my house. Stay at my house overnight. I'll feed you dinner. I'll put you up for the night. And you can sit and tell me some more stories. You can teach me some things. I want to hear where this is coming from. I want to hear what you're all about. We've never met anybody like you before. Wouldn't you expect that kind of a reaction after hearing that he had done this? What was their reaction? They began to plead with him to depart from their region. They didn't just ask. They pled with him. Please leave. Please leave. Don't stay here. We we don't want you around here. Would you please just move on? Go to the next town. Go to the next region. Please don't stay here. Would you please leave? Does that surprise you? I mean, to me, that's amazing. To me, if I had never read this story before, I'd be stunned. by by that response, by that request out of them. Why would they ask that? I mean, what is the problem here? What, What is it that they are so afraid of? Well, think about what just happened to their community. No matter whether we think that farmer was Jewish or Gentile, still 2,000 pigs represents a major impact on that community. I mean, A lot of people, a lot of businesses are probably tied to those 2,000 pigs, to that pig farmer, to to, to that enterprise, right? 
I mean, it takes, it takes all kinds of people to make sure the breeding is taking place that's supposed to. They're fed the way they're supposed to. There's a lot of selling going on from a herd that size. There's processing that's taking place. A lot of people are eating pork, ham, bacon. I mean, there, there's a lot tied to this herd of 2,000 pigs. But this one man shows up, and he ends all of that in a matter of minutes. His power, his authority took away from them things that were very, very important in their lives. He changed their lives with just one word. Think about that. The demon asks permission to go into the swine, and he simply gave permission. That's all he did. And that one word ruled everything. His one word ruled the demon-possessed man and made him all better. His one word ruled the demons themselves. His one word ruled that 2,000 pig herd. His one word had authority over absolutely everything. Every facet of creation is represented there. Every realm you can think of, human, spiritual, animal, this guy has power where he speaks one word and all of it does exactly what he wants it to do. And it changed the lives of these people permanently. And as excited as we get thinking about that, they were scared of it. Think about it. If he's able to do that with one word, if he's able to change our lives with one word that way, if he's able to upend something that is so important to us like those pigs, what else could he do if he stays around here? What else will he do if he stays here in this area with that kind of power and that kind of authority? He's already affected our lives where the pig business is over. Now, what else will he end? What else will he stop that we enjoy, that we take pleasure in, that we rely on for our living? What else will he turn upside down with that kind of power and authority? So here you've got a group of people that would rather that crazy man go on being tormented by those demons and stay wild and insane out there in the tombs. They would rather that man go on that way and their lives maybe be a little inconvenienced to try to avoid him on certain days of the week and yet keep their lifestyle as it was. Keep, keep their interests intact, keep control of their work rather than have to submit to the power and the authority of this stranger. And that is very telling about this group of people. But they're not our subject this morning. I don't want to get sidetracked on them. Our portrait here is of the Gadarene man. Our interest is in the change that took place in this man after his exposure to Jesus. Now, there's a lot we don't know about him. We don't know when he was possessed by this demon. We don't know if it started with one demon and then more and more came into over time. We don't, know, we don't know if the effect of their presence got worse as time went on. Maybe it wasn't so bad day one, but here he is, you know, five years down the road and it's just awful. We don't know. Maybe it was that way from the very get-go. What we do know is the state he was in when Jesus got off the boat. He was insane. He was out of control. Mental and emotional chaos. He was dominated. He was completely controlled by the evil spirits. And we do know what Jesus did about that. Jesus freed him 
from the demonic presence and all the effects of the demons in him, Jesus freed him from all of that. And, and we've already seen the initial impact on the man, right? When the people came out of the community to find out what had happened, how did they find this man? Sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. So we already know that initial change. This is immediate. He was this, now this is what he is at this moment. But what we're really interested in, at least I am, is his reaction to meeting Jesus, seeing him, understanding who he is and what he had just done for him. I want to know his reaction to his exposure to Jesus. And what we know is it was the exact opposite of everybody else from that region. Look at verse 18 with me, if you will. And when he, that's Jesus, when Jesus got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. So this is his first spoken reaction. He was sitting clothed in his right mind, okay? Life has changed for this guy. But now he realizes life has changed and who changed it. And what's he do? He begs Jesus that he might be with him. Now, think about the irony here, okay? This is the first time anybody's begged Jesus for anything in this scene? Nuh-uh. The people of that region begged Jesus to leave them. This guy is begging to stay with him. It's the exact opposite. Please leave. Go away. He's saying, please let me be with you. Don't go away. And, and again, this is not just this man saying, let me sit here in the boat and talk with you for just a few minutes before you leave. The language here tells us that he wanted to go on being with Jesus. He wanted to stay with Jesus. If Jesus is leaving, he wants to leave too. And wherever Jesus is going, he wants to go with him and stay with Jesus day after day after day from this point forward, okay? So here you have a man who didn't want to stay in his old world anymore. You might think at this point in time, since he's been changed, no more demons inside, I'm not crazy anymore, I'm not wild, I'm not cutting myself, I'm not a threat to anybody anymore. You might think this guy would want to stay at home now, right? Now I can, now I can be with family, I can be with friends without them being afraid of me, and I can enjoy life now like I haven't been able to enjoy life for a long, long time. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the desire, the first desire in the heart of this guy. But that's not the desire in his heart. He did not want to stay in his old world because his old world was going to be absent of whom? Jesus. Jesus was leaving. And if Jesus is leaving this world, I don't want to be in this world. If Jesus is not going to be in this region anymore, if Jesus is not here by the mountains anymore, if Jesus is not going to be in this community, I don't want to be there either. I want to be where he is. You see a man here that becomes Christ-centered automatically, just like that. He doesn't know a lot about this guy yet. This might be the first time he's heard this is the son of the most high God. It's all brand new to him, but he's seen enough at this point to know, I want to be a disciple of this guy. I am now a follower of this guy. Where he goes, I go. I want to see more. I want to hear more. I want to learn more. If he can do this for me, he's probably doing it for other people too. I want to watch that. I want to be present when he does it for someone else. And I want to thank him. I want to praise him. It's not enough for this guy to get healed, to get freed, and then Jesus leave and go somewhere else. This guy wants to shower affection on Jesus. 
This guy wants to pour out his love from his heart all over Jesus. This guy is full of gratitude, and he wants a river of gratitude to flow out from his mouth on Jesus constantly. So please let me go with you. Please let me stay with you. And what would we expect Christ to do? I mean, what kind of a response would you expect from Jesus with a man making this kind of request from him? Well, look at verse 19. Let's get surprised again. However, that's always a a giveaway, right? However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Jesus' response, no. I want to go with you, no. I want to stay with you, no. You stay here. You stay here and you tell your family and friends about me. You tell them the compassion that I've had on you. You tell them the great things that I have done for you. Now, now think about this again, because this is, this is all so, so much of this is backwards from what we would expect, and that's normal with Jesus, right? But, but it seems to be backwards and upside down. The demons made a request of Jesus, and did he give it to them? Yes. Can we go in the pigs? Yes. The ungrateful people from this region made a request of him, And did he give it to him? Leave. Please don't stay here. Please get out of our region. What's he doing? He's getting in the boat to leave. So you got demons getting what they ask for. you got ungrateful people getting what they ask for. But now this healed, freed, grateful new disciple makes a request of Jesus that we would think glorifies Jesus to no end. I mean, can you imagine this guy going along with Jesus and just showering him with praise and worship and gratitude day after day? Why wouldn't Jesus be glorified by that? I would expect Jesus to say, yes, okay, get in. But he didn't. He did not give that man what he wanted. What did he do? Jesus commanded that man to do what Jesus wanted. No, what you want is to come with me and stay with me. It's not what I want. Here's what I want. You stay here and witness for me. And we always default to the fact that who is this? This is the Lord. He is Lord. He is sovereign. What he says goes. Every command he gives should be followed. Whether the people understand it or not, you obey because he is the son of the most high God. He is Lord. He is king of everything. His word goes. And so without any explanation whatsoever, Jesus tells this guy to stay here and witness. Stay here and witness. And if that's all we had, we would have to be satisfied with that because it's coming from the sovereign one. But think about the command that Jesus gave to this guy. And what you see is the wisdom of Christ. You see the the practical wisdom of Christ. What is the best thing for this guy to do? Does Jesus need this guy to come along with him and go to the next village? Absolutely not. But what better witness would there be in that community where these people have known this wild man for Who knows how long, this crazy guy. Everybody knew what he was like. Everybody knew the stories. Many of them may have watched him grow up. Many of them probably had encountered him out there near the mountains. They knew he was out of his mind, possessed by these demons. And now he comes back into the community and he is sane. He's in his right mind. He is acting human again. He is speaking and acting like everyone else. And they're so shocked to see him in this way And he says, 
let me tell you how it happened. Let me tell you about the one who did this for me. They can't deny the miracle. I cannot get around the miracle. I mean, you can't, that's a before and an after that, that there's no cloudiness to it whatsoever. His before and after are radically different. And so they're going to want to know why, how. And he can say, Jesus, he had such compassion on me when I was possessed by that legion of demons and he cast the demons out of me. He's the reason I am sane and I'm in my right mind now. And I love him. He is the son of the most high God. He is the one we're supposed to be worshiping. What a witness for Jesus. I mean, you can see the purpose of Jesus in that command, as good as it would have been for this guy to go along with Jesus. As much worship as Jesus would have gotten through him, still practically speaking, Jesus always knows what's best. So his command for this guy is to do something that he didn't want to do, first and foremost. But what did the guy do? Verse 20, and he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. There's the sign of faith. There's the evidence that this guy gets it. He doesn't know everything about Jesus. He doesn't know that Jesus is headed to the cross and he's going to die there and be in a tomb for three days and be raised from the dead on the third day. He doesn't know any of that yet. He doesn't know how this guy is, is coming to bring eternal salvation and righteousness to his people. All he knows is this is the son of the most high God. I believe it. Look at what he did to me. No one but he could have done this for me so I believe, and because I believe he is Lord, I will follow his command. Even though it's not the first thing I'd like to do. Even, it's not, even though it's not what I think would have been the best thing for me to do next. He is who he is. He is Lord. I believe that wholeheartedly, and I will obey even when it's not the greatest thing that I wanted to do. And why would he make that decision? What would lead him to, to obey quickly, readily? No argument. Just obey immediately. I think this guy at this point in time remembers the hopelessness and the misery that he was just in minutes before. I mean, it hadn't been long at all at this point in time. He remembers the hopelessness, the misery. He remembers how he was dominated by evil. That was all still fresh in his mind. So he appreciated the one who had set him free. He appreciated the compassion. He appreciated the power and the authority that Jesus used to set him free and make his life completely different. And because of that, just like the Thessalonians that we talked about last week, he goes and he quickly starts spreading the truth about the Lord and that radical, wonderful change that the Lord had brought to his life. And folks, I want to tell you that that is the primary mark and work of a disciple. This is what we've been talking about for weeks and weeks now. What, is a, what does a true disciple look like? When discipleship is present and it's growing the way it ought to be, what will you see? And we've seen different things, but this is one of the primary marks. Personal exposure to the person of Jesus Christ and the compassion of Jesus Christ and the life-altering grace of Jesus should produce a glad witness for Jesus. But here's the sad thing. This is one of the areas where we struggle most, isn't it? Probably most of us in this room who are believers, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. For the most part, we, we're mute. We'll talk about Jesus with each other because we agree, right? We like to talk about Jesus with other Jesus followers. But are we going into the towns and the villages? Are we going to the friends and the family members that don't believe in him? And today... Plenty more that don't even know of him. Joy interviewed a couple in the pantry 
a couple of weeks ago who had never heard the gospel. Never. Not even a piece of it. None of it. Here in Winston-Salem, they live on a street near here. And would you have thought that could be the case here 25 years ago? Probably not. But there's more and more of them today. And are we so enthralled with Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us that that we're talking to all of them. I mean, we're just, we're just bragging about him and we're talking about his compassion and we're talking about the miracle that changed our life. Most of us struggle to do that. And I think this scene tells us why we struggle so much. I mean, here, nobody could deny the impact of evil on this man. He especially couldn't deny the impact that evil had had on him. The control of those demons had left this guy hopeless. Nobody could help him. He couldn't help himself. This guy had been miserable. He didn't have any peace in his life whatsoever. He was hurting himself, and he was threatening everyone else who got near to him. I mean, when you look at this guy living among the tombs, it's a very fitting symbol for where he was spiritually, right? Where he was and always, I mean, among the dead, this guy was living like a dead man. He was living like he was on the brink of death all the time. So when this guy was suddenly found sitting with people and clothed and in his right mind, everyone knew that it took a miracle. He especially knew that. This guy felt the impact of that miracle. This guy felt the freedom and the peace and the rest, the brand new life that was now his, the hope in this brand new life, the happiness of this brand new life. And this guy naturally adored the one who did it for him. So again, even though he couldn't go along with Jesus the way he wanted to, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus, couldn't stop bragging about Jesus, couldn't stop telling everybody the miraculous thing that Jesus had done for him. Now, here's our problem. Most of us don't see our former condition as helpless and hopeless and lost and dark and out of control like that demon-possessed man. We don't. When we look at our past, it's not that bleak. It wasn't that awful. It wasn't out of control like that. Probably most of us in this room were born and raised in Christian homes. And the Christian way of life was always our way of life. I mean, we grew up religious. We grew up moral. We grew up and we weren't really breaking the law out there. We weren't really doing unethical things. We had a pretty good, morally speaking, religious life because of the way we were raised. We did believe in Jesus consciously at at a certain point in time, but the only real change was that we were probably baptized into a local church at that point in time, but nothing really changed dramatically. We just professed our faith in Jesus Christ. And even there might be some here who weren't raised in a Christian home, but still they weren't involved in what seemed like godless, immoral, illegal lifestyles. They didn't run around hurting themselves and terrorizing everybody else, and they certainly weren't demon-possessed or out of control or insane. And even if there are some here who look back on their former life and say there was some godlessness there, it wasn't constant. I mean, it was probably the exception rather than the rule. There were times when, yeah, there was immorality there, and yeah, I broke some laws here and there and other, but, but that was the minority of the time. For the most part, it was a, it was a pretty moral harmless lifestyle, right? 
So when we talk about our conversions, it felt more like just a change of, of, our, of, of our mind or, or a new belief that we've latched onto on our part. More that than a miraculous rescue from the clutches of evil and, and radical transformation. We don't really see it that way, do we? And I'm convinced that that's what's at the heart of our struggle in discipleship. We don't grasp how lost we were. We don't. We talk about it. We use the language. But I don't think most of us really grasp how lost we were. How far away from God we were. How opposed to God we were. We don't grasp it. And so, very quickly... Finishing up here this morning, I want to put three passages up here on the screen for you where our former condition, all of us, every one of us, is described in Scripture. So let me put them up here on the screen for you. You don't even have to turn to the first one. Here's the first one, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 22. Write it down. I put it up here because Paul uses the same phrase in some form five times. He says, you were slaves to sin. You were slaves to sin. What does a slave do? Whatever his master tells him to do. A slave lives by the will of his master, not by his own will. So if sin was our master, what was our master telling us to do? Sin. Unrighteousness. The opposite of what God is and what God says to do, sin was giving us those orders. And because sin owned us, we were enslaved to sin. What did we do? Sin. That was our way of life. We can spin it. We can put a nice coat on it so it doesn't look as bad. But the fact is, we served sin. It's God's word, not my word. Here's the second passage, and you had to know we were going here. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 with me very quickly. I want to show you some language. Now, remember what we're doing here. I don't want you to miss my point. I'm trying to make a comparison. We've just looked at a man who was owned by demons. A whole legion of them. And you say, how many is a legion? A Roman legion was thousands of soldiers. How many were in this man? We don't know for sure. There was enough to make that herd of pigs, 2,000 strong, control every one of them and make them run down the hill into the ocean. So I don't know how many demons, but a lot. That was what caused him to be insane, crazy, more like an animal than a human, terrorizing himself and everybody else. And we look at him and we think, yeah, he needed to be changed. And wow, look at the radical transformation between what he was with demons and what he became without demons. What I want you to know is we're not very different. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1, please. Paul writes this, And you, you believers in Ephesus, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, in those trespasses and sins, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul doesn't say, four of you in Ephesus, I know you, you were so far gone. I mean, it was, you were, you were the worst of the worst. What does he say? We all 
once were like this. And notice what he says. We followed the course of this world. This world lies under the sway of whom? The wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That wicked one from the very first two people in the Garden of Eden has been trying to influence and been pretty successful at it, manipulate people to say, we can live life our own way. I'm going to live life in the way that pleases me. You can be like God. That's the message of the wicked one. That's the message of this world system that's out there right now. If you don't believe me, just go on social media, go on the television, and what's the message? Live your own way. Nobody can tell you what to do. You want to kill a baby? Kill a baby. Guy, if you want to be a girl, be a girl. Girl, you want to be a guy? Be a guy. Do what makes you happy. This is nothing new, folks. Been going on since the very beginning. This is the course of the world. And Paul says all of us used to follow that. Yeah, I want to live for me. Now, I might not go start breaking laws, and I might not do absolutely immoral things, but in ways that don't make me look so bad, I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm going to run my own world here. That's the way we did it. But Satan wasn't just influencing us from the outside. What's it say? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan had influence inside of us controlling our minds, controlling our desires, so that we weren't just watching the world and saying, oh, that looks like a good thing. We're hearing voices on the inside saying, that's, that's what you can have. You need to go that direction too. And we gave in. We did this. This is the way we lived. Gadarene man, whole legion of demons inside of him, making him do what they wanted him to do. Were we very different? Satan himself telling us which way to go, we were following. We were following Hook, line, and sinker. We were right in that. We were right behind because we wanted to be God of our own world. I'll be in charge here. I'll I'll, I'll call the shots. I'll do what makes me happy. Well, last one. I'll finish with this. Look over at chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and look at verses 17 through 19. Paul gets really um, dirty with his language here. I'll just use that word. The, the, The language he uses here is so forceful it is so descriptive look at verse 17 writing to the very same people this i say therefore and testify in the lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the gentiles walk if he's telling them to no longer walk that way what's he saying you used to this is the way you used to don't do it anymore how did they walk how did they live in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. What's he say? That used to be you. And you're still tempted to live that way. And the old man still wants to live that way. Now you don't have to, so don't do it. But my point is, you did before. We used to. I mean, the the language, futility, Darkened understanding, ignorance, godlessness, past feeling. We, we, we weren't even afraid of what God might do to us for breaking his law. We weren't truly compassionate when we saw people hurting. We weren't full of love for other people and for God. No, huh? We wanted what we wanted. 
We wanted to satisfy ourselves, and some people pushed it all the way to the place of lewdness. If that's what it takes to make me happy, I'll go do that. But even short of that, I'm going to do what makes me happy. All because of demonic control. We followed the prince of the power of the air, his control over this world system. That's what we followed right behind. And I don't think we, I don't think we grasp the gravity of, of what our condition was. Because if we did, if we were like that Gadarene man, and we woke up one day and we, we saw, wait a second, Satan no longer owns me. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer fighting with God. I'm no longer trying to dethrone God and replace him with me. I'm no longer an enemy of God. Sheldon read Romans chapter 5 to begin with. When you were at one time enemies of God, that's when he poured out grace on you. And you wake up and you say, I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm no longer foolish in my thinking. I'm no longer spiritually dead in all of my thoughts and my desires. Now I am spiritually alive. You realize that took a miracle. No less miracle than the Gadarene man being freed from those demons. Because it's the same thing, spiritually speaking. And if we really got that, if we really understood that, and we really appreciate that, we couldn't keep our mouth shut. We'd go to town telling everybody about the compassion of the Lord and the great things he has done for us. Like I said last week, we don't have to have a theological five-point sermon laid out to share the gospel with someone. We don't have to make sure we've got all of our doctrinal ducks in a row so that we don't confuse anything for anyone. All we have to do is say, I used to be owned by Satan. I'm not owned by Satan anymore. I used to be a slave to sin. Now I follow Jesus Christ. It's a miraculous transformation. And just let me tell you about the guy who did it. That's what a disciple does. And so I leave you with It's up to us to really look into our hearts, examine our actions, and say, how strong is my discipleship? And I take you back to our lesson that we've learned all the way through this. The strength of discipleship is tied directly to our exposure to Jesus Christ. The more we are looking at the one who had compassion on us and how he had compassion on us, the great things he has done for us, the stronger our discipleship will be. I want to be with you. I can't wait until you come back and get me so I can be with you constantly forever and ever and ever. Chief desire of a disciple is to be with Jesus always and forever. But we can't yet. He has sovereignly determined that we're here for now. So in the meantime, what are we going to do? Go into town and tell all your friends and family about the one who had compassion on you and the great things that he did for you. That's a disciple. Is Jesus worth that? Is he so beautiful? that, man, that's the least I could give to him. That's the least that I could do for him. Look at Jesus constantly, every day. Be looking at Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will use what you see to build stronger discipleship every day. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your son. Uh, What more can I say than that? Thank you for your son, who he is, what he did. And I pray that as we look at this miracle that was done for the Gadarene man, we won't separate it as, oh, that's, that was a miracle that, you know, that, that freed him from demonic possession, but I was never demon-possessed, so how can I relate to that? Father, I pray that as we look at a story like that, we will relate to that. Because we will, we will see, we will remember what we were spiritually. 
We were spiritually enslaved to sin. We were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. We were spiritually following the course of this world that is under the sway of the wicked one. We were spiritually following the spirit, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, and we were some of those sons. So how are we any different? How are we different today? The only way is by the miraculous power and grace of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to see that. Help us to appreciate that, to appreciate him, so that as his disciples, we can't keep our mouths shut. We're telling anyone and everyone, whether they ask to hear it or not, we are boasting about your son. He deserves it. We leave the results up to you. We, we don't know if anybody will believe too, if they'll be drawn to Jesus because of it. We hope so, but whether they are or they aren't, he deserves that. That's the praise and the glory and the reverence that he has earned with that act of grace. So move us with the truth. Move us with our exposure to Jesus Christ. And I pray it all in his name. Amen.